Good morning. This is the Lou Rockwell Show, and it's an honor to have as our guest this morning, Mr. Jefferson Morley. Jeff Morley has been a, an investigative reporter in Washington, an actual investigative reporter, I might add, in Washington for about 30 years, uh, 15 of which with the Washington Post. He's the author of four important books. Uh, today, I want to talk to him about his most recent book, fascinating book, about a fascinating and evil guy. It's The Ghost of the Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. So, Jeff, tell us about this man, Angleton. I mean, uh, I can remember as a kid Bill Buckley praising him as a great guy in National Review, which made me suspicious of him right then. So, James Angleton was really one of the founding fathers of the CIA. He was uh, joined the Office of Strategic Services the first U.S. intelligence service during World War II, and then moved on when the CIA to the CIA when, it, when that agency was created in 1947. And for the next 27 years, Angleton reigned supreme at the CIA, where certainly from 1955 on, as chief of the counterintelligence staff of the CIA, Angleton wielded extraordinary and secret power. Um, really, he was never the director of the CIA, but because of his position as counterintelligence chief, he was effectively the second most powerful man in the CIA and really ran the counterintelligence staff as a CIA within the CIA. So um, I call him the most important unelected government official during the Cold War. And I think that the, the story that I tell in The Ghost bears that out. He had extraordinary range of influence, much wider than was, was previously known from the other good books that have been written about him. Uh, so uh, it's an important story for today, too. And yet there was very little, in, in, until your book, certainly, uh, very little known about him. I mean, he kept his own secrets as well as the CIA's secrets. And I, I was amazed to find out that he was pals with uh, Ezra Pound. Yes, yeah, so um, uh, a remarkably interesting person, uh, really an intellectual. Uh, you might not like his ideas, but... Um, he was a deep thinker. He had a well-thought-out theory of history and geopolitics, very anti-communist, which is why the likes of William F. Buckley admired him. And, uh, you know, and, and a master bureaucratic operator, you know, knew how to leverage his power, like J. Edgar Hoover. He was a master of collecting secrets and using them to for his own advantage. Um, and indeed, he... He shared a lot of secrets with Hoover. Um, that was one way that he managed to establish uh, a working relationship with the FBI, which was always very hostile and skeptical to the CIA. So um, he was a, a master of secrets and a master bureaucratic operator. Tell us about uh, Angleton and the Kennedy assassination. Well, one of the one of the most important findings of the book, uh, and one of the strongest, I think, is the story of how Angleton took an interest in Lee Harvey Oswald um, as soon as he defected to the Soviet Union in November 1959, and kept a close watch on him for the next four years. And when I say kept close watch on him, I mean put him under mail surveillance, for example, from abroad. So, for example, Angleton was reading the letters from Oswald's mother to the State Department in 1961 and 1962 when she was looking for her friend. So Angleton took a deep interest in this obscure character named Oswald, and he maintained it 
from November 1959 to November 1963. Wherever Oswald went, Angleton received any government information on him, whether it was from the FBI, Office of Naval Intelligence, State Department, or from components of the CIA. All of that information is funneled into one place, into a file, that is held by Angleton's staff. So this surveillance of Oswald before the assassination really casts a new light on November 22nd. Because whatever whatever happened in the gunfire that, that killed President Kennedy, the fact that the alleged assassin was well-known to senior operations officers, intelligence officers like Angleton and his staff, shows that the, at a minimum, the president's assassination was a much larger counterintelligence failure than the government has ever admitted. The alleged assassin was known to a half dozen top CIA officers, well-known, six weeks before Kennedy was killed. This is not a theory. This is well-documented in CIA records and interviews that I did with retired CIA people who worked with Angleton. So this is really a new part of the book that, that, like I said, there's been other good books written about Angleton, but his role in the JFK story and this interest in Oswald, which accelerates in 1963, in late 1963, when more and more reports about Oswald come into Angleton's office. So this is really um, a really a new story. And um, what we've seen in the last couple months is, you know, the government releasing the last of its JFK files, well, was supposed to, you know, there's still this intense interest in, you know, the Kennedy assassination and its causes. There wouldn't be this, you know, intense interest in the media unless there was this intense disbelief of the official story and, and, and people looking for a more, a more persuasive explanation of what happened to President Kennedy. So, the ghost is an effort to lay down a real firm factual foundation about what the CIA knew about Oswald before the assassination. And I think that the question that it raises and does not answer, the ghost is not a JFK assassination book. It's a biography of James Angleton. But the question that it raises is, you know, did the CIA simply miss this guy who had been under, who they had been watching for four years, or did they manipulate him? You know, so were they incompetent or was somebody conspiring against the president? And I don't try to answer that question in the book, but that is the question we are left with by the record of Angleton and Oswald. What was going on? We have a little more clarity now. Well, it's it's extraordinary. And uh, yeah, uh, what about the story of Angleton and the Warren Commission? Well, so one of the things that Angleton did was he had to hide this intense interest in Oswald before the assassination because it, it completely contradicted the story that was that the FBI and, and the Dallas police seized on, that Oswald was this strange guy who shot, came out of nowhere and shot the president for no reason, or no reason that anybody could ever discern. Um, so Angleton couldn't say, oh, by the way, I've been interested in that guy for four years, and then sorry, he killed the president. No had to play dumb. And so as the, as the Warren Commission began to receive some documents about the agency's pre-assassination interest in Oswald, they, they brought the documents to Angleton and they said, you know, could you, we want to see, we want to see these records. 
And Engelson writes this infamous memo in, in March 1963, or his aide does, and says Jim would prefer to wait out the commission. Why did Engelson want to wait out a commission investigating the murder of an American president? Well, to hide his pre-assassination interest in Oswald. That was what he was doing. He could not afford to let that story come out because he might have lost his job. The whole Warren Commission investigation would have taken another another direction because the question would be, why didn't uh, you intercept this guy or do something to stop him? Um, Angleton never answered those questions. And so the Warren Commission never learned about the pre-assassination surveillance of Oswald. Alan Dulles, Angleton's friend, might have known about it, but Dulles did not share it with other members of the commission if he did know about it. So this story remained hidden. And it really wasn't until uh, the late 1990s when, thanks to the JFK Records Act, the government began to declassify the Oswald file that had been held by the CIA and by Angleton staff. And once we got a look at that file, starting in the late 90s and over the, the next 10 years that followed, we began to see that this man, Oswald, had been watched for four years by Angleton staff. So now we have a better, we have a clearer picture of the CIA's monitoring of Oswald from 1959 to 1963, and it was clearly controlled by Angleton. Did Angleton go to Yale? Yes. So uh, his father was a very successful um, businessman uh, who owned the Italian subsidiary of the National Cash Register Company. And so as a young, as a teenager, Angleton's family moved to Milan, Italy, and uh, Angleton grew up in fairly, you know, luxurious circumstances. His father was fairly wealthy. His father, by the way, would, he, Angleton did not come from old money. When you say Yale, you sometimes think, you know, landed gentry, families with money going back for generations. That was not Angleton. Angleton was more of a nouveau riche character. While his father was wealthy, his father had come from very modest circumstances. So. This was part of Angleton was um, a very cosmopolitan young man. Um, by the time he got to Yale, he spoke three languages, uh, French, Italian, and English. Um, he'd lived in circumstances both modest and luxurious. He'd lived in the American West. He was born in Boise. He lived in the Midwest, and he'd lived in Europe. He went to school in England. So this cosmopolitan background was a great asset to him as he went into intelligence work. Well, when I said Yale, too, I, I was thinking of uh, the sort of the CIA intellectuals of that era. Yes. So um, one of his friends at Yale, a professor named Norman Pearson, was the one who referred him to the OSS. And other Yale professors were instrumental in the creation of the OSS because the United States was trying to develop an intelligence service to learn about the Nazis so that the U.S. could retake Europe from the Nazis. So uh, the OSS had a strong Ivy League and uh, you know university component to it, and in fact, in Yale, in, in Angleton's class of 1941, his Yale class of 41, I think there were maybe 10 or 12 uh, members of that class joined the OSS. So this was the path from the Ivy League to intelligence work that became very strong, especially over the next two decades. When did Angleton uh, develop his close relations with the Israeli intelligence? Well, um, Angleton was assigned to Italy at the end of the war because he was fluent in Italian. 
And so in 1945, he was the chief of the OSS counterintelligence station in Rome. Uh, when the CIA was created two years later, Angleton joined the staff immediately and was sent to Italy. So in this time in Italy, one thing that he saw and that he reported on was the emigration of Jews from Central Europe to Palestine, right? The survivors of the Holocaust were desperate to get out of Germany and Poland and get to a new land. And they, and they traveled from Central Europe down to, uh, the Adriatic ports of Italy and then sailed to, to Palestine. Uh, Angleton wrote a lot of reports about Jewish immigration and who worked for the Jewish agency who later became the founders of the Israeli security services. Israeli foreign intelligence was created in 1951, the Mossad, and Israeli domestic intelligence, the Shin Bet, was created at the same time. So by 1951, when these agencies were created in Israel, Angleton was already friendly with Meyer, um, uh, Isser Harel, was one of the first leaders of the Mossad. Uh, and so he became friendly with these men right away in 1951. He arranged meetings between David Ben-Gurion, the Israeli prime minister, and, um, and Alan Dulles. And this relationship between the CIA and Mossad was developed starting in 1951 by Angleton. He went to Israel almost every year uh, of his career, starting in the 1950s, at least uh, once a year he would go to Israel. Um, and he maintained these relationships and these friendships throughout his career. Um, and in the book, I show um, four of his friends who became the head of the chiefs of Mossad. And I have an interview with one of them who, who knew him very well. So it's the first real detailed look at how this relationship between the CIA and the Mossad grew up over the years. And now it's very, it's a very strong uh, relationship, although, you know, the question of Israeli spying on the CIA is a, a sensitive one for the agency. But the special relationship between the Israeli and the American intelligence services was created by James Angleton. There's no doubt about that. And did he have something to do with Israel getting atomic weapons? I also talk about this extensively in The Ghost. Um, did he have any to do with it? Well, it happened on his watch. He was responsible for reporting on uh, Israel's efforts to obtain nuclear weapons. Uh, starting in 1961, there had been a directive from the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board that this was a reporting priority. Um, if Angleton reported on the Israeli nuclear program, uh, not much evidence of it has ever surfaced. And he knew a lot of the men who were involved. I identify six of them in the book. He, these were Israelis who were witting to Israel's secret program to obtain the bomb. So in 19, between 1964 and 1968, um, the Israelis uh, stole, or some say diverted, uh, a couple hundred kilos of fissile material from a nuclear processing plant in Pennsylvania. And this was the material that the Israelis used to build their first bomb. So when it was later investigated by the FBI, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission investigations never came to any decisive conclusions, mainly because the Israelis and the CIA did not cooperate in sharing information. I advanced the story a little bit in The Ghost by I found 
the papers of a man who worked for Angleton and who was the chief of the CIA station in Israel in the, in the mid-1960s, a man named John Haddon. And John Haddon had reported on the Israeli secret nuclear program and tried to report on it um, and was constantly blocked by Angleton. And Haddon had died in 2011, but his son gave me access to his papers. And in his papers, John Haddon Sr. wrote a extensive memo to the uh, House Energy Committee and to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission explaining how the Israelis had stolen the fissile material. And there were 29 points to his argument. So this guy's a very well-informed source. He was worked with the Israelis for three years. He worked in Israel for three years, and he worked for Angleton for seven. Um, and he said that the, the Israelis stole the fissile material and that the, the response of the U.S. government was either gross incompetence or treason. And he was clearly laying this choice at the feet of Angleton because he was the man who was responsible for it. And so, you know, the story that the Israelis stole the material was never proven in court because the investigations never went anywhere. But John Haddon's memo is very strong evidence that the diversion did take place and that people inside the CIA understood the fact pattern that proved that it took place and that it all happened on Angleton's watch. So his fingerprints are not on the crime. It seems to have been a crime of omission rather than commission, but he's responsible for it, in my view. This was an amazing guy, wasn't he? I mean, he was brilliant. He was evil. Uh... Yes. Yeah. And, and I think this is one of the things that's very strong about the book is there have been other good books focusing on his search for KGB moles within the CIA, which is a very important story. But it was only part of the story of what of his career. He was he had a much broader career than was generally known before this book. Um, what he uh, and he was a very capable operator. So he had, and he had an unprecedented range of contacts around the world, certainly in um, in, in in Europe and in Israel. Um, uh, and in the intelligence services of uh, uh, Great Britain, uh, Italy, and Israel. And he used his power he, uh, to achieve his goal. So uh, he was a remarkable, uh, a remarkable character, for sure. What led to his um, having to leave the CIA or being forced out or uh, retired? So, yeah, um, what caught up with him was um, in 1967, President Johnson was alarmed by the anti-war movement, and he could not believe that this was simply uh, the American people objecting to a stupid and criminal war. And he thought that the anti-war movement was controlled by foreign powers. And so he asked the CIA to investigate. Now, this was a very sensitive mission because the CIA's charter forbids spying on Americans. But um, CIA Director Richard Helms assigned the job of spying on the anti-war movement to the counterintelligence staff, and Angleton brought in a career officer named Dick Ober to run the program, and that program was called Operation Chaos, and it continued for the next six years, um, really under Angleton's auspices. And um, in this time, 1967 and 1973, the anti-war movement grew very much, and there were people inside the CIA who said we should not be doing this. You know, we're spying on my wife and children, you know, because the CIA, like every other part of American society, was divided about the war. 
And so there was a lot of objections internally, and um, eventually the program was was shut down after Helms left as director. Um, when the New York Times got wind of the story in late 1974, uh, CIA director William Colby, who was an enemy of Angleton's or a critic of Angleton's, took advantage of Seymour Hersh's reporting and confirmed the story to Hersh. And the New York Times ran it a massive front page headline, and Colby immediately fired or had the excuse that he'd been looking for to fire Angleton. And so that was the end of his career. So he started at the CIA in 1947 um, and left under a cloud of scandal in 1974. But the, the firing of Angleton was very important because it led to, it led Congress to create the, uh, what was called the Church Committee, a Senate Select Intelligence Committee to investigate the CIA. And the Church Committee was the first real hard look that Congress ever took at the CIA since its founding. And it was the first time that the American people really learned what the CIA had been doing since its founding. And so the Church Committee uncovered not only the spying on the anti-war movement, but Angleton's mail surveillance program, which he had applied to Oswald, um, mind control experiments, which Angleton had a tangential role in assassination plots, which Angleton was uh, involved in, at least in Cuba. All of these range of uh, abuses of power came to light, and Congress implemented reforms for the first time, created the House and Senate Intelligence Committee, passed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. CIA had to get a warrant from a FISA court if they wanted to spy on Americans. So Angleton's fall was also very influential. You know, this guy wielded incredible power, and then when it was exposed, there was a backlash, and a whole series of reforms were, were implemented. That, too, is part of Angleton's legacy. Well, Jeff Morley, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for writing The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. It's a fabulous book. I can't recommend it uh, enough to people, and our people are definitely interested in topics like this. So uh, I hope we can sell some books for you and um, keep up your work. Thank you, Lou. It's good to have a chance to, uh, you know, explain the book in details, not just in a little soundbite. So I appreciate you giving me the time. Thank you, Jeff. Bye-bye. Well, thanks so much for listening to The Lou Rockwell Show today. Take a look at all the podcasts. There have been hundreds of them. There's a link on the LRC front page. Thank you. Thank you.